like the news is, is worse than ever, guys, both here and, and in the U.S., uh, here in the U.S. and everywhere in the world. Right. Just bad news. Feels like there's nothing but bad news out there. Well, we here at The Tonight Show have decided to do something about that. We want to do something here. So we asked real uh, local NBC News anchors from all around the country to read stories that we wish were true. <laughs> stories that make us feel happy. I'll show you what I mean in tonight's installment of I've Got Good News and Good News. Republicans and Democrats have reached a deal to, quote, just be cool with one another. Witnesses say a dog in sunglasses riding a skateboard is in town this week. And guess who he wants to hang out with? You. Great news for commuters. Traffic jams are no longer possible, especially where you live. Okay, on the count of three, let's both say what we're thinking. One, two, you're the coolest person in the world. Well, you better snuggle up, everyone. The forecast today says there's a 100% chance of puppy hugs. Breaking news, everybody. Kissing rules. Fighting drools. Just a reminder, babies are quick to smile at pretty much anything. If you meet a baby, chances are you won't have to do much to get a grin out of them. And finally tonight, now that I've got you face to face, can I just tell you that you are like seriously the best person. You're nice, you're funny, and most importantly, you smell good. Isn't that great? Thank you to all those news anchors for helping us out. Does everybody feel better now? Well, we've been going through the book of Philippians for the last few weeks, thinking about and looking at habits of happiness. And the funny thing about this is that the author of the letter is in prison, and his fate's going to be decided by a leader who takes particular pleasure in killing Christians. So you could say that Paul's in the middle of, instead of good news and more good news, He's in the middle of bad news and more bad news. But you wouldn't even guess that if you just read the letter and didn't have that background piece of information. Today, we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. And we're going to continue our discovery, or perhaps more likely a reminder, that happiness is an inside job. That's right. We're going to take a look at four habits for a happy heart. Because that's where that unshakable joy that we've been talking about really starts, on the inside. Would you read or follow along on the screen as I read Philippians, the second chapter, verses 12 through 18? Here's what Paul says in this part of his letter. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Ooh, do I need to read that one again? I don't feel like I do. I've been listening to that all week. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. 
So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, I think just by listening to those words, you've already picked up that Paul's not on a rant here. He is not pointing the finger at us. He's not telling us like, uh, this is joy for dummies, part two. He's not doing that with us. It's not a new idea that he's bringing up to him. And he uses this wonderful address, dear friends, or my beloved is what some translations say. He's addressing them warmly in this part. And he's also using words like continue. So it's not something that he's trying to just brand new lay on them or point a finger at them. Paul's cheering them up and onward in their experience of this unshakable joy that helps us reign or rejoice or be joyful in the most dire circumstances of our lives. And what he's really saying is, in and words, keep up the good work. You're on the path to a happy heart. And here's what it looks like. Let's remind ourselves of that today. That's what we're going to do together. Four habits of a healthy heart straight from Paul's letter. Habit number one, follow the leader. You see this right in verses 12 and 13. Here's what my paraphrase of that is. I can work it out because God is working in me. That is, I can live out my faith because God is working in me. Now, whenever you see a therefore at the beginning of a section of scripture, you ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And to do that, you always go to what just preceded it. And what just preceded it is this wonderful passage, the first um, 11 verses of chapter 2 that Jared covered last week so powerfully and passionately. And it was really Jesus' central story that he left heaven and all of the rights and privileges as the son of God, that he gave it all up and he took on this really flawed tent that all of us have. And anybody who's lived more than, you know, 20 years knows that these tents are messed up, right? But he took on that kind of a tent, gave up all of his privileges and powers. And then he came and he lived a a sinless life, a perfect life, but he lived it as a humble servant. And then he went to the cross and died. And he rose three days later from the dead and went to be with his father. And It's this example of obedient, humble servanthood that then the father was able to exalt him to his right hand and say that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue will confess. And Jared talked about last week how there's going to be a day when every person on planet earth acknowledges who he is. And this is so important to review because what Paul's saying is, therefore... Because of what Jesus did, because of his example, because of his humble obedience to his father, even to the point of death, I, you, we all should be motivated then to work out what God is working with us. And remember this, this isn't Paul's first time to talk about God's work in this letter. He kicked off the whole letter in Philippians 1, 6, right? With this, being confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you. We'll continue it until the day of Christ. And so Paul is saying, he's not saying we are to work for our salvation. He's saying that we're to work it out as God works it in us. And there's a big difference in that. So some of you maybe work out at a gym. Uh, I do. Well, I have to say that I just returned to the gym about a week ago. So I'm feeling the pain here really well. But think about when you work out at a gym and you begin to lift weights. Do you create muscles that weren't there? 
No, you are actually strengthening, toning, building up muscles that God already put in you. He already designed you with. Now, it feels like you're making them, doesn't it? Well, I said maybe the next day it feels that way, but I have to tell you this week it was I felt it by evening time, you know, and that's when I bring on the Advil. But strengthening and building up muscles that are already there, that's what this work thing is all about. And when Paul uses this work, word for work, it's energon. It's the word we get energy from, but it's not like stored up energy, hanging on to it for a rainy day when I need a little extra heat going. No, it is energy in operation. It's energy applied. It is literally like working out at the gym. It's us working out our faith, using our energy to live out what God's been doing inside of us. That's what he's talking about here. So I like to think of this like a happy heart workout, these four habits. And the first one is this one of following our leader. And what he's saying is do the work to make your spiritual life visible on the outside. Do the work to make your spiritual life, what God's doing inside, visible on the outside because God is already doing it. Now, that's not the end of the good news in what Paul writes here because he said that just like Jesus, we're never alone. You see, if God is working in us as he is and as Paul stated for us, if God's working in us, then that means we're never alone. But more than that, it means that we're not on our own. We are never alone and we're not on our own. In fact, Jesus' last words before he left to ascend to his father with his disciples was, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He'll never abandon us. And if you've ever been abandoned in your life and you struggle with really believing that God would really stick with you through thick and thin. And what Paul's saying is God's at work in you for his purposes through thick and thin, through your best moments and through your worst moments, through when you feel like you deserve it and when you feel like you don't, for when you feel abandoned and when you don't. He never leaves us. And on top of that, you can never be separated from him because the whole point of Jesus coming and taking on that humble body and going to the cross for us is there was that moment on the cross where he cried out one of seven cries was my God my God why have you forsaken me you see Jesus in that moment took on your sin my sin the sins of everyone who ever would live ever will live ever hopes to live and in that moment and he experienced separation from God so that If we'd receive him, we'd never have to be separated again. It's once and for all. He's taking care of that separation problem. So I can follow the leader. I can follow Jesus' example in working out, living out my obedience to God and what he's up to in my life because he's working in me and he's with me. I'm not alone, nor am I on my own. And that's something that you can celebrate every day. That's something that can make you joyful in the most dire of circumstances. And I'd like to invite you to say these two phrases with me together. Let's say them together. Ready? I am not alone or on my own. I can work it out because God is working in me. The first habit of a happy heart is follow our leader, King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Habit number two, don't grumble, be grateful. 
Okay, he doesn't mention the grateful right here in this part, but you'll see why I'm mentioning it. Verses 14 and 15. Oh, yes, that wonderful word. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, I don't know about you. This might be the hardest command in all the Bible. Some people feel like it is, some days especially. But I'd like to know, how many of you have ever had a nickname? Anybody fess up to that? Yeah. Well, some of them can't be shared here, can they? Nor did we really appreciate all of them. But my little granddaughter, Julia, who I have a picture of right here. I mean, doesn't she look like an innocent? Okay, but she has a nickname, and her nickname is Bear. And the thing is, on some mornings, she's called Bear. But on other mornings, they call her Grumpy Bear. That's right. She's not a morning person. She didn't get that from her Grammy. So when, when Paul is declaring this, where is Paul when he says, no grumpy bears allowed? Where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison saying no complaining allowed. Furthermore, when the Greek structure of this sentence is that what's emphasized to us is all, in all situations, no grumbling and complaining anytime, in everything. It starts the sentence for emphasis. So when we read a passage like this, we kind of like to study the words and their meanings and sometimes with the hope that it means something different than what we think. (laughs) Because what we think it probably means is a lot rougher than we want it to be. And that's kind of how this one is. Because, well, I'm going to give you the nuance of what grumbling and arguing really meant here. It really means just what Paul said. Okay, the grumbling here referred to a grumbling discontent with others or with another. Okay, grumbling discontent that we express about others. And the arguing that's mentioned here, it's talking about evil and anxious and doubting thoughts that often result in arguments and fights among us or with others. Am I the only one in the room that after you read that verse, you kind of like to hang your head and kind of slink out of the room? Maybe you didn't have my last two weeks, but I have a hunch that a lot of us did, that those words have been circling my brain for the last two weeks, and I've been caught time and time again with the scope of them. Do all things, do everything without grumbling or complaining. So lest we had any doubts about who that included, I just want to quickly run through four categories of complainants, lest you've excused yourself from this. I think we'll see ourselves. One is the whiners. Okay, they even have their own bumper sticker. I may rise, but I refuse to shine. Okay, and when we are a whiner, there's a wonderful book that's now made into a movie, and we read it to our kids. Alexander's No Good, Very Bad, horrible day. Any of you read that book? Yeah. And it's a new movie out and and he's this kid having a really rough day and no, he's not joyful in it, but about halfway through the day, there's a transformation. I don't want to spoil the movie or the book for you. So I'm not going to give away more than that, but all of us have had that kind of a day. But the thing is, whiners usually that's due to a loss of perspective. There's a little phrase we use a lot with each other here in the States about this. When somebody's whining, we say, that's a first world problem. I had a friend and her husband text her while she was with me that, and he was complaining about the long lines at Costco. Now her empathy was a bit low that day. So she texted him back and said, first world problem, honey, right? Because 
He was whining. That's where most whining results from. And then there's martyrs. Yes, being a martyr is a form of complaining. Martyrdom usually happens with people who are focused on fairness and comparison. And I want to just tell you, one of our practices with our kids was when they'd say, that's not fair, we'd say, you don't want fairness. You don't want fairness from God. I don't want fairness from God. What's fair is I'm I'm dead. But God chose blessing and grace. And that's what we told our kids. You want blessing. You want grace. We're a family committed to blessing and grace, not fairness. So that's the martyrs. Then there's the cynics. And cynics are those people who attribute self-interest to all the decisions that others are making. And they're people who say, what's the use? It's not going to be any different tomorrow. And it can be really poisonous. They're the people, the naysayers, when you said, I'm going to make this change in my life. And they're the people who tell you you can't do it. They're the naysayers when a student says, this is my dream. And they say, you'll never be that. That's a cynic. And I want to tell you that a cynic often has his eyes or her eyes in the rearview mirror. That's where cynicism results. We have an election coming up. And the Lord really spoke to me this week about this, that I'm a cynic. I'm a cynic when it comes to the elections. It's like, what's the use? I mean, I have the very lines that they, you know, highlight about cynics down there, right? I've heard this before when I'm believing and praying for somebody to change and they're working on it. And people tell me, people don't change. That's a cynic viewpoint. And that's a look back. That's complaining. And let's talk about the fourth category, perfectionist. Perfectionist, it's never good enough. I have a friend and her mom was an English teacher and she would send back all her cards and letters corrected in red ink. We have our own versions of this, okay? Somebody tries to help you with a task and they don't do it the way you'd do it. And what do you do? You get out the red pen. Well, not literally, but that's what happens a lot of times to men when they try to help women around the house. It's not the way you want it, so you gripe and moan about it, right? That's the perfectionist piece, okay? Now that we've all seen ourselves in all of these, uh, I just had to make you share what I've been going through the last two weeks. But... Here's the good news. This habit, we need a way to convert grumbling to gratitude. Because you see, God's commands are always good. And they're always motivated by love. And this one's no difference. And science continually keeps discovering things that God was way ahead of them on, right? The creator, no, no surprise. And researchers at Stanford, in lots of studies, have have discovered that people exposed to 30 minutes of complaining a day actually have brain damage because it attacks the neurons in the area of the brain that has to do with cognitive functioning and problem solving. So I know you've done this. I know I've done this. I've sat in a session either with a few people or a team at work and everybody complained and we didn't do any solutions. How do you feel when you walk out of some time like that? That, right? And they've actually shown in studies that listening to 30 minutes of complaining a day will also zap your energy, right? To live life the way God really wants you to live it, to experience his happiness. And this is the thing. God didn't give us this so he could shake a finger and say, do all things without grumbling or complaining. He's got our backs, 
He's got our backs here. That's why Paul's talking to us about this, because grumbling hurts us and the people who have to listen to it. And so he steps in like a parent and says something most of us have heard, if not said on many occasions. Stop it. Don't do it. So I love this picture. There's a lot of ways to move from grumbling to gratitude. And here's one. That's right. You try complaining and putting your hand on a mouse trap. That pain is one way to fix or to transform uh, grumbling to gratitude. But I want to suggest something straight out of God's playbook to you. His playbook for a happy heart. And it's to be grateful. And he talks about it to another church he planted, the church at Thessalonica. And here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Had to put it all together. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So gratitude is the antidote for grumbling and complaining. Gratitude will rewire my brain and give me a new recording, not just to listen to, but to act out on with other people. So I want to mention five tips for converting grumbling to gratitude. Um, And they're great. And many of you have done some of these. The first one is to keep a daily gratitude journal, just writing three to five things a day down. Some people you've noticed have done this on Facebook. You don't have to tell the whole world about it for it to be effective. It's just the simple act of intentionality writing it down requires intention and with that we begin to rewire our brain to thinking about what's right and what god's really doing the second one is to use visual reminders i don't know how many of you have done one of these but this is a gratitude wall and what you do is you find an area in your house now a refrigerator's often a great place and you have sticky notes and a pen next to it and you invite anybody who wants to anybody who comes in your house or your family to contribute What are you thankful for today? And you just build this wall of gratitude. And it's an amazing thing to do in the month of November, a month where we really want to turn our attention to giving thanks specifically. But anytime, having a visual reminder. Jared and I have this to the left of our kitchen sink, and that's like the most populated area in the kitchen, right? The most visited place in our house. And it's gather together, be thankful, speak kindness. That's a visual reminder, and visual reminders are powerful helps when we want to convert our complaints to gratitude and move away from grumbling. The third one is to have a gratitude partner, and this is just social support of healthy behaviors always increases your success at them, right? Get a buddy. It's the whole buddy system. So I want to tell you about my buddy. This last week, I had something that really ticked me off. It hurt me that somebody had said. And so I went and had this rant time with my friend, okay? My gratitude partner. And she did the best thing. She said, so what are you going to do about it? And that is a powerful rewiring trigger for you. If you can give permission to the person that you share with, your gratitude partner, to interrupt you. And I had to think about what I was going to do instead of just going on and on about what bugged me. I had to go to the proactive side of it. And you know where that's going to go when you've got do all things without grumbling or complaining circling in your head, right? It's what am I grateful for? What did that person really intend? Something much better. Great thing. Have a gratitude partner. Fourthly, you could make a public commitment. 
Oh, we're getting scarier now. Not just one person, but maybe a small group of them. And I say that because we have a lot of groups and a lot of you are part of them and some of you are still thinking about one, but it's a powerful thing if you share with your group. Every week, life groups are asking, how can we support you in what God's doing in your life? This is when you speak up and you go, you know what? I'm working on converting my grumbling to gratitude. And this week, I want to work on it. Would you ask me next week? It's just a broader group of people. Fifthly, change your self-talk. I love this picture of, for self-talk. You know why? Because that reflects how my brain works. Okay, I'm kind of a pinball machine. Um, and some call that ADD, I guess. But my mind just ricochets with thoughts. And once you get on a track of grumbling and complaining, it's amazing how it expands in your head. But one of the things that we get to do, research has shown that you can actually change your Mood by changing the things that you say to yourself. And this is where the rewiring starts. Happiness is an inside job. It starts with the heart. It starts with my heart, not my spouse's heart, not my kid's heart, not my neighbor's heart, not my coworker's heart. And so this is a part of why we're rewiring. And Ephesians 4.29, I can't tell you what an eye-opener it was when God spoke to me and said, that applies to self-talk, not just talk to other people. And this verse, don't let any unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building another up that gives grace in the moment. You deserve that. You deserve that same kind of talk. God wants you to have building up words. He wants you to be encouraged. And when you intervene in your own self-talk, it's what... Paul writes in another letter, we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I know I'm not to grumble. I know that gratitude's the answer, Lord. Help me to change the pathway for my words. So when we stop complaining and we start giving thanks, we positively stand out in our world. And Paul uses this wonderful picture that we're shining like stars amongst this warped and wicked generation. But he's really saying, you stand out. You make a difference. Other people see the difference in your life that Jesus Christ is making. I love Dave Ramsey's slogan for FPU. When you're debt-free, he says, be weird. Be weird. Be debt-free. That's what Paul's saying here. Be weird. Stand out. Don't be afraid to stand out. Be a gratitude person instead of a grumbler. You will absolutely stand out in the most positive ways with the people around you. When I was at the retreat this weekend, I had an assignment. I took a Ziploc bag filled with thank you cards and I just wrote thank you cards. And no, I didn't just write them to the people who were up front, though I included them. I started writing it to little people that I saw do things all during the time. Absolutely transformational to do that because you begin looking for, commenting on what's right about things. And it was just an incredible experience for me as well. You see, when I give thanks and refuse to grumble, I'm highlighting the goodness of God. And I'm highlighting the one who can turn a crucifixion into a resurrection, who turns mourning into dancing, who can take some ashes and out of that form something beautiful. I'm expressing faith that the God who we said is at work in us is working still and with us. And that brings us to habit number three, which is a wonderful encouragement out of verse 16. The third habit for a healthy heart is to hold firmly to God's word. Now, 
This word, to hold firmly to God's word, it's only used five times in the New Testament. Nowhere does it have the nuance that this has. This isn't holding a football. I saw some of this yesterday. Oh, I was watching the LSU game, and oh, one of their um, receivers had the ball, and I mean, he had fumbled a couple times. So next few times he got the ball, you saw him with both hands wrapped around it every time he hit the ground. He was remembering. That's not what this word is, trying to keep it for yourself. This is about holding it out, like the Olympic torch that will be carried from Olympia, Greece to Rio de Janeiro for the 2016 Games and every Olympic Games. It's carried in a relay to the destination of that Olympics. And I'd like you to take a look so we really grab hold of what it means to hold on to God's word. We have something so much more precious than the Olympic torch will ever be. There's tremendous fanfare. There's tremendous expense. There is tremendous vetting of every person who will carry that torch. That For every leg of the relay, there are 8,000 people who will carry the torch to get it from one place to the destination of the next Olympics. But we've been given something That is eternal and true. We've been given his promises, his priorities, his instruction, his encouragements that are essential for our lives. And the word here is this word for holding it out. It is a manly word, if I could, which is appropriate for today. It is about gripping God's word. Psalm 19 verse says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Psalm 119.16 says it this way, your principles make me happy, so I'll never forget your word. Psalm 119 verse 35, that psalm's filled with things about God's word. says, lead me in the path of your commands, because that's where my happiness is found. Get a grip on God's word. Read it, listen to it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, apply it. That's a grip.
That's what Paul's saying. As we hold on to, as we grip God's word, we're going to shine like a star in a warped and crooked generation. Now, we're not told to shine. We're not told to try to shine. We're told that it's a present fact. We do shine. It's something that we already do. But I just want to encourage us today to not forget what we're holding. It's better than a football. It's better than any job you've ever had. It's better than any book you've ever read. It's God's word. It's amazing. And I look at the respect for that torch and think, I wish that that could transfer into our understanding of God's word and hanging on to it. And January 17th, on a Saturday here at 9 in the morning, we're going to have a seminar called Daily Jesus. And this is all about helping people get a grip on God's word and on his direction for their life. And that'll be just one of many opportunities that we have. There's amazing Bible studies and all that kind of thing as well. But do you want to know how to hold firmly onto God's word in your life so you can experience his joy that's unshakable? I encourage you to come. And that brings us to habit number four, serve others. This is verse 17 and 18, where Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering on the service of these Philippians' faith. And he says, I'm glad and I'll rejoice in that. Now, Paul uses this reference, this word that he uses for poured out. He only uses it twice in the whole New Testament. It's this word spendo, and I kind of think that's a great word for it because that's what he's talking about, his life being poured out so that their faith can be advanced. Now, what they would have heard him say, they would have thought of sacrifices. So if I was a Greek there in the church at Philippi and I heard him, I would have thought about our pagan sacrifices before I came to faith in Christ because there they poured out the water or the other prescribed liquid, and it would be poured out on top of the sacrifice, pouring it over it. But that's not the Jewish practice. So if I was a Jew who had come to faith in Christ there at Philippi, I would have understood what Paul was saying. I'm pouring my life out in service of your faith. And it would be this picture of pouring his life out all around their lives. An amazing picture. So I want you to know my paraphrase of this, which really fits what Paul's saying. He said, even if my life ends today in service of your faith, I am the happiest person in the room. That's what he's saying. So this habit of serving others, it's not commanded here. Rather, it's modeled. Pour yourself out like Paul, the happiest person in the room, is how we could say it. But I want you to know that he explicitly tells us to do this later in the letter in Philippians 4, 9. Here's what he says. He said, whatever you've learned and received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Those are Paul's very words in the same letter. You see, we have a lot of opportunities that are coming up where we're going to get to serve others, where we're going to get to pour ourselves out like an offering on the service of other people's faith to advance faith for people. There's going to be food bank opportunities where we invite you to help bring food for holiday meals. We're going to give opportunities for you to sign up to volunteer out there so that we can help some of our neediest families in our community. 
There's going to be opportunities to do gift bags for our precariously housed students. There's going to be opportunities coming up where you can help us with two big projects that are here projects for our nursery and our nursing mothers area and our teens, our student ministries area. But most of life is not those. It's not about those areas. Most of our opportunities are what Jared and I like to call parking lot moments. It's the opportunity you have to serve another when nobody's watching. Or at least you don't know that anybody's watching. That's where it comes. It's reading the story to your child when you're dead tired and instead choosing to give them their bedtime routine. There's not going to be a little person standing next to you applauding you when you do that. It's walking out into the parking lot and helping somebody in in the rain. It's putting gas in the car when you see it's getting on empty because of the next person who's going to take it. It's those kinds of moments. And I want to highlight a couple of heroes here who are living out these parking lot moments for our community right now. The first couple is Jason and Jewel Heaton. And Jason and Jewel serve in kids' ministry. Jason and Jewel don't have any kids of their own, but they have devoted themselves. They come to the 8 o'clock service, and they come to that so that they can have a service so they can then serve in the following services. And without any kids of their own, they pour their lives out every week, just like Paul talked about doing on behalf of our kids. They love him. And Jason takes his guitar and he works on that and leads them in worship and lets them have a cool time with God. And who was it who greeted me when I came into the retreat? It was Jewel standing at the door welcoming every person who came. Another hero in the faith, and there's so many here, and there's so many of you sitting out there, but Linda Boffman, because you see, Linda just had knee replacement surgery, and while they were doing the surgery, her tibia fractured in this long of a fracture, four inches, folks. They had to take a wire, and this is going to ooh hurt, and wrap it around the bone and then crimp it into the bone. And for the last two weeks, she's been battling an infection in the incision. So she's had to have complete bed rest and stop the great progress she was making in her mobility. But you know what she's been doing? She practices the habits of happiness for a happy heart because she has been texting people all over the place and asking how she can pray for them. And then she prays for them and then gets a report back. So she prayed through the women's retreat. I called her on the way back from the retreat yesterday. And she'd been praying for every speaker, for all the leaders, for all the women. For the last two weeks, my mom got shingles before she left for Yuma two weeks ago. Who do you think was texting me saying, how can I pray? And then following up with my mom while she's down in Yuma, Arizona. Nobody's going to know about that, right? That's the parking lot moments. And I appreciate these people who do this in the middle of even their own difficulties. It's a powerful thing serving others. So I want to come back to where we started as we wrap it up today. We started with what Jesus did. 
And what he did motivates each one of us to live out these four habits. And so I want to just invite you to close your eyes and to consider what's the Holy Spirit saying to me? Because of what Jesus did, I can follow my leader, Jesus, and be that way. I can do things without grumbling and express gratitude in its place. I can convert my grumbling to gratitude. Because of what Jesus did and because he's at work in us and he'll never leave us. And you're not on your own or alone in this. Because of that, then I can hold firmly to his word in my life. And because of that, I can serve others. Would you pray with me?